You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Ed from Educator FI. This is Frog Dancer Jones. Jerry Bourne here, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. Two teachers have had a profound effect on my life. The first was a tutor who I was introduced to in second grade when it became obvious that my inability to read was going to have a potentially profound impact on my future. She diagnosed me with a learning disability, assured my parents that everything was going to be alright, and then proceeded to retrain my brain over the next five years. I not only caught up to my peers, I was eventually able to surpass them, which would become quite important as I set my visions towards medical school. The other was a teacher in high school. Through the lens of U.S. history, he taught us how to question the world, work fiercely, and bask in the joy and love of learning. He wanted the past to come alive and instruct us on the myriad hurdles that he knew we would face in college and adulthood. He made learning magic. There is no question that both these educators profoundly changed my trajectory emotionally, professionally, and financially. But it makes me wonder, what about education as a career? Certainly, there are a few more impactful jobs, but how does it line up financially? Can educators reach for financial security and independence? Do they make their money through wages or side hustles and freelancing? And speaking of side hustles, many of you What's Up Nexters are freelancers, small business people, and consultants. And what's even harder than getting the big job or account? It's getting paid for it once the work is done. That's why we are giving a big thanks to Joust for supporting What's Up Next. Joust is the nation's only all-inclusive banking platform for the self-employed. PayArmor, Joust's invoice payment guarantee product, supports the 71% of the gig economy workforce that experiences non-payment. You can sign up for Joust for free at try.joust.com backslash W-U-N and enter the promo code W-U-N and get $100 in credits. That's try.joust.com slash W-U-N. Today on the show, we have Frog Dancer Jones. She's a mother, a single parent of four boys, a teacher, a blogger, and a financial independence, but not necessarily retire early enthusiast. Frog Dancer, welcome to the What's Up Next podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And you're coming to us from Australia. So as I was saying, you are a full day ahead of us. Yes, yes, I am. I'm talking to everyone from the future and it's going to be a beautiful day and everything's fine. Next, we have the millionaire educator. He is an MBA holder, an educator within and outside of the United States and also a blogger. Say hello to the What's Up Next listeners. 
Hey, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here as well. We're happy to have you. And you are out of the closet. Your name is out there. Uh, You are Jerry Bourne. Is that correct? That's me. Some people know me from my basketball days at Davidson College. And I've taught many a Spanish student in Georgia. You chose to be outed through the Choose FI book. Is that right? Were you one of the people that was discussed there? Yes. And uh, I just decided to use my real name. I guess in the early days of blogging, I was just afraid that my name would be associated with some of my numbers I've thrown out there. But like I always tell my students, I could have the cure for cancer on my blog and no one would read it anyway. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's an easy way to look at things. Certainly, it helps calm your fears of anonymity. All right. And finally, we have Educator Fi. He went from broke to a seven-figure net worth in less than 10 years, as well as he slayed over 100K worth of debt. Welcome to the show, Ed. Thanks. Thrilled to be here. So Jerry used to go by Ed. So you, there were two Eds in the field, two educator financial independence buffs. But now that he goes by his real name, you are the Ed of financial independence. It's his first if he wants it, but as long as it's free, then I'll use it. All right. Well, let's get into the questions here. Frog Dancer, I wanted to start with you. I was reading through your blog and you describe a low point in your financial life. And I'm actually going to quote you here. You said, that night, as I sat there in a dim room, hands freezing and watching three mice eat from the dish containing the mouse bait, I cried. How is it possible that a tertiary educated person in a nice middle-class suburb in a rich county like Australia could be living like this? How had it happened? Talk to us a little bit about what was going on in your life at that time. Oof. Yeah, that was over 20 years ago. I got married, had four boys in five years. And then when my youngest was 11 months and my oldest was five, I left my husband and so I became a single parent. Those years were really, really tough because the kids were so young. I couldn't afford childcare to go back to work. So, and I also wanted to have a very secure base for them. So I stayed at home with them for four years until my youngest started primary school. I was on the sole parents' pension, which was, I think, roughly around $18,000 a year. Child support was very erratic in those years usually about $20 a month. That year, the heater broke down. I couldn't afford to fix it or, you know, to fill it with heating oil because the brakes on my car went and so I had to choose one or the other. So I decided the brakes were more important. I went through nearly the whole winter just sort of eking out the heating oil and, yeah, it was really tough. I'd learned how to stretch a dollar. Ed, What Frog Dancer describes obviously has to do with her unique circumstances, her divorce, etc. But it's not unlike the picture some of us get of what a teacher's life looks like. Certainly, there doesn't seem to be extravagance when you ask your average person what a teacher's lifestyle looks like. Is that fair? I think it's fair in the early years, especially. When you're a new teacher coming out of college, most of us have some level of debt and you start out lower on the salary schedule, right? So teachers' wages build over time. So those early years were lean. I experienced Frog Dancer's story from the child side. Um, My mom was a single mother when my parents split. And so I had a sense of deprivation when I was a kid. My wife and I got married, and she had come from an immigrant household where she was always taken care of, but had lived lean as well. So when we were first together, uh, we spent more than we were making on our teacher's income, for sure. 
Jerry, as we start this conversation, I think about your blog name and your avatar, Millionaire Educator. I almost feel like those words don't go well together, millionaire and educator. How do people respond to that? Uh, I get the question, are you an educator who has a million dollars or do you teach people to be millionaires? And most people thought the latter. And, you know, even as, as I was looking for a domain name and I typed that in, I thought, you don't hear very often. So I liked it because it was kind of shocking because to many people, what the three of us are doing is impossible. Building wealth on teacher salaries. Once I kind of figured out the wealth building process, as you all probably realize, it, it works for any profession, teachers included. Frog Dancer, Jerry said that most people think for an educator, becoming a millionaire is impossible. Do people go into teaching for money? No. <laughs> I mean, it's silly. People think that teachers earn nothing. I think it's slightly better out here than it is for you guys in the States. But uh, you certainly don't go in it for the money. You go in it for a lot of other reasons. I've got enough now that I could retire if I want. I've reached financial independence. It's been six years since I had a $10 net worth and now I've got a $2 million net worth. I didn't do that just from my teaching salary, though. We don't get paid that, that much. But definitely teaching is for the love of learning and having a laugh with the kids. Ed, I want to get into this idea of how teachers eventually end up with millions. But before we do that, I feel like we have to talk about debt. If you had asked me before looking at your blogs, I would think that teachers probably didn't come out with a lot of debt. But it sounds to me like, at least for you and Jerry, debt was a big part of your story. Is that right? It was definitely a big part of our story. And Part of that was because neither my wife nor I went to undergrad for teaching. And so it was a career change for us. So we had to go back to school and get a master's in teaching, which came with debt because we weren't earning enough to cover it. So part of that was borrowing. But it's also not unusual for people to go into education, not really understand finances or think about how they're going to get through with debt and come out with student loans. They may not be on the hundreds of thousands of dollars order of doctors, but uh, many teachers do come out with loans. And Jerry, you're no stranger to debt either, right? You came out of schooling with some debt? Yes. My wife and I picked up about $45,000 of student loan debt when we went to grad school. And prior to that, we never had any debt. So I knew I didn't want to have it for long. So that was my impetus to go to Saudi Arabia. And I just, I paid it off as soon as possible. But yeah, 20 for me and 25 for my wife. Frog Dancer, so we're talking about debt and we described that story of where you came from. Is poverty a problem for teachers? I mean, are we seeing a lot of teachers who are just struggling to get by? In Australia, it's a little bit different. We get paid better than people in the States. If we've got a contract with a school, we get paid over the summer as well, so we don't have to go out and work. We're in the middle of a huge property bubble. So teachers who are starting out are often like getting married, buying houses, and like a decent house in Melbourne will cost you around the million dollar mark. Our student debt isn't as bad as over in the States. It's certainly there. Most teachers come out with a debt of maybe 30000 or something like that for their, their four years of teaching, but they often get really mired down in mortgage debt here. Ed, you know, Frog Dancer Jones was talking about the fact that 
in Australia, they don't have it necessarily as hard sometimes as we do here in the United States. Is this living paycheck to paycheck existence for teachers common here in the U.S.? I think it is common, particularly for newer teachers. What I've also learned is that it varies widely by where people are working. Uh, in, in many areas, a teacher after their sixth or seventh year is earning a pretty good wage. You know, so in some cases, they're earning the median household income for the entire United States. But those early years are tough. The other thing, and Frog Dancer mentioned this, is housing is a concern. Those higher wage areas are typically around cities and housing prices have gone up. In our area, for example, most teachers are priced out of the metro area. And so they're moving out and having to travel in. And so that adds additional time and expense to it. It is a mix depending on where you live and what your expenses are. But over time, uh, you can build wealth. Jerry, in fact, I want to quote you from your blog. You, consistent with what Ed just said, say, and I'm going to quote you here, teaching in America appears to be a financial dead end, or at least that's what many people think. But then on the other hand, you go as far to say as it can be a gold mine. It sounds like there's a dichotomy between what people think of as the existence of a teacher and what it could be. Can you explain a little bit why people are wrong when they think it's a dead end? Well, a lot of that has to do with just mindset in general. If you think you're going to be poor, you more than likely are. And as Ed said, the first seven years are kind of where you make your bump on the salary. So after seven years, you could be making fifty, fifty-five thousand with uh, graduate degrees. That's pretty decent money in America, especially if your spouse has a, uh, a comparable job. When you have dual income families making over 100000 we can start saving some money now. And as um, many people in the States know but at this point, teachers have pensions and two 401k plans. You have to use those plans to build your wealth. And that's uh, basically what my wife and I have done since 2002. Frog Dancer, Jerry just offhandedly said, we can't talk about this in the teacher's lounge. And I'm wondering, do educators talk to each other about finances? I mean, do you have conversations like this in the teacher's lounge? Actually, I've started to, and it's been really, really good. There's been a couple of conversations that we've had that we've made people start to salary sacrifice into their superannuation, which is the equivalent of your 401k. And it's really exciting when people they start to get switched on and realise that it's possible. Like everyone at school knows what I've done with the geo-arbitrage and how it's really accelerated my retirement. So when I say something, they're more inclined to listen. So, yeah, sometimes we do talk. It's good. Ed, Jerry mentioned mindset. And so I'm wondering what do educators tend to do wrong that keeps them from being financially stable? Yeah, I think the mindset piece comes in and it relates back to whether we talk about money. It's almost an ethos, at least among the teachers and educators I've been around, that we aren't supposed to care about money, right? That you're doing this job out of a sense of service and because you love teaching and you love the work, which I think is generally true. And so there's almost a barrier to talking about money because then you're talking about something other than the passion of the work. So I think that's a mindset thing. And because of that, we don't realize a lot of the advantages that we do have. You know, Jerry also mentioned the two 401ks. That's the 403B and the 457. I didn't know anything about the 457 for 15 years that I could have been contributing to it. So a lot of it is just not being aware of those advantages because we don't talk about money and are somewhat discouraged from doing so. 
Can you describe for the audience what a 457 plan is? Yeah. So the 403B is somewhat equivalent to the 401k. There's some differences there. And then a 457 is an additional retirement plan that's technically deferred compensation, but functions roughly the same way. And so we have two full tax advantage buckets where many private employees have the 401k. Most educators have a pension on top of that, but very few actually even understand their pension, which is a whole different issue. Frog Dancer, it sounds like there are some educator hacks. In other words, if you understand the system, there are some ways to really benefit. You mentioned geo-arbitrage before. How does geo-arbitrage play a role in the educator's path to financial independence? Well, it obviously won't work for everyone, but what I did was I had a house in a very highly sought-after school district. I bought when my oldest was in prep so that they could go to that particular high school and I ended up teaching there myself. When they all left and I didn't need to be two minutes away, I sold and I actually sold at the peak of the market. I was very, very lucky. I took that, what I got from it, and moved 15 kilometres away. I was able to pocket an obscene amount of money and freed up all of that money that I'd poured into that little house over 17 years using my teacher's wage I brought forward my retirement date by about 10 years. That's not so much a teacher hack. I mean, anyone can do it, but I don't think I would have done it if I hadn't been educating myself about finances and reading and thinking about it and tweaking things. I think that's where the financial independence blogging niche, if you like, is really, really valuable because I'm not a numbers person. I would not have thought to do a lot of things. I came out after paying my mortgage with a $10 net worth. Six years later, I'm sitting here right by the beach, five minutes walk away, and I'm financially independent. It's quite amazing. I guess, yeah, teaching has a few hacks, but I think you guys have more sort of hacks available to you than we do. We mainly just, I guess a hack is just tutoring and things like that where you can make a little bit of extra money. You guys have a few more retirement things, obviously, than we do. I wanted to mention here the way I've done a geo-arbitrage play here in South Georgia. I have left a job before so I could access 457 money for living expenses since that money doesn't have uh, any penalties if you separate service. But then I would go to a low-cost-of-living area. I rented a 3-2 house for $750. I went to another town another time. I picked up a two-bedroom townhouse for 500 bucks. Because we're so low living there. And keep in mind, I'm on the state pay scale in these smaller towns. And we were making over 120 130 a year. And we were able to save big chunks of it. Every year, my wife and I save uh, at least $100,000 using all these various accounts. And what uh, Frog Dance was saying about having the financial independence blogosphere When I first started writing about this stuff in 2007, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know who would be reading this. I just started like tracking my net worth and putting commentaries on my numbers. And lo and behold, someone emailed me back and this thing just started to take off. But yeah, I think younger teachers, there's so much they can tap into. They just have to imitate a few of the moves that we've made and they'll be sitting pretty 20 years from now. I wanted to follow up on that. I think location, especially for teachers in the United States, is incredibly important. And it goes back to 
teachers don't know enough to determine what location is best for them often. We don't talk or learn anything about money as we're preparing for it. And so there are a number of places where I absolutely believe teachers can build wealth and reach financial independence. As I've looked around at different districts and and some of their offerings, I also believe there are some places where they can't. Salaries are low, or some of these options that we've talked about, particularly in 403B plans, the options are so horrible that teachers shouldn't be in them, right? And their pensions have been gutted. And so all of those things combine to the district you choose to work in, the area you live in with those costs is incredibly important. I think there are lots of places where teachers can be successful, but you need to know enough to look at those factors. And right now, we just don't talk often enough about those things. And so I'm really grateful to Jerry for the writing he's done on those because it helps people start digging into those. And that's why I write as well. Frog Dancer in Australia, is your salary changeable? I mean, can you increase your salary or is it pretty set as a teacher you're going to make a set amount? It's different in Australia because we get paid by the state government. So everyone in Victoria is paid the same depending on how many years of service you do. So you could be teaching in a rich area or a poor area. You're going to get paid the same, which I think is really fair. If you want to work in the other private system, you know that you're going to bump up your salary by five to 10 grand a year, but they do make you do Saturday sport and I don't like to, <laughs> I want my weekends to be mine. So you can do things like that. And then we also have the Catholic system, but I'm not sure what the pay grade is there. So there are little ways like that. And then once you reach the top of the pay grade, If you want to do things like being a student manager where you look after a year level or become a specialist teacher or a leading teacher, you're taking on leadership roles, then your pay goes up a little bit there too. Ed, it seems like in the United States, things are a little bit more variable. You talk about the three E's of educators' income. What are those and how do you toggle them? I was writing about education, experience, and extra duty. So those are ways that can increase your income. So most uh, salary structures here are based on the education levels you have. So you will get different pay for a bachelor's, a master's, and then some other set of credits. So that's a way you can increase your income. The experience, each year you just build experience, and most salary structures are built on your years of experience as well. Although the interesting thing in these is, those can vary by districts that are right next to each other. Frog Dancer was talking about five to 10,000 based on going to international. Here, you can make five to 10,000 more or less by moving 10 miles, depending on where the districts are. That, again, makes it really complicated for people to navigate. In contracts, there are a number of different things. If you do coaching, as Jerry does, or some other things, in most cases, you'll make a little extra money doing that. Again, those amounts vary by the district that you work in. Jerry, taking what Ed said to an extreme, some people decide to teach outside the United States. Is that right? Yes, there's a lot of opportunity with that on international school circuit or even language teaching in, say, Korea, Japan, China, the Middle East. There are a lot of ways to skin a cat, and I could see people becoming financially independent doing any of those methods. From what I've heard, I've never taught in the Far East, but, you know, you have your regular job and everybody does a side hustle job. They save their salary from their main job. I've heard those stories for 30 plus years now. The international school circuit, depending on where you are, you know, it could be not 
too much money or it could be considerably more than you make here. Generally, it has a housing package and they pay for your flights there. And it's a very good deal. I know people have gone to Thailand and done it. This person I'm thinking of never came back. She's still there with her family. I think she's moved, they've moved on to the Middle East now, but they love it. Frog Dancer, we love side hustles in the personal finance community. Have you found that you wanted to move outside of class teaching and use your educator background to do side hustles to augment your income? I was actually a Thermomix consultant and eventually a group leader for a good five years. Thermomix is just like almost like an Instapot thing over there. Um, It's a cooking appliance that just does everything. I was always looking to earn more money and I found this thing and discovered that uh, being a teacher, you've got to be a good communicator and sales is often really, really a good fit for a teacher because we're used to imparting ideas. I did this side hustle where I'd go out in the evenings and on weekends and I'd cook meals for people and they'd buy this appliance. And I found that it totally accelerated me paying off my mortgage. And then once that was done and the kids finished high school, I was able to fund a $30,000 trip to Europe where I denied myself nothing for for nine weeks. I planned it when I was 15. I got there when I was 51. It was just the best thing. So I used sales as a way to earn a bit of extra money. And then once I moved out here, I decided that I didn't need to do it anymore. Someone else can have the opportunity. So I'm just doing teaching at the moment. Ed, talk about the side hustle game in the U.S. I mean, you guys also tend to have summers free. Is side hustling a big thing for educators in the United States? It is. In the early years, you almost have to do a second job to make it through. But my wife is a teacher as well, and we've earned anywhere from ten to 20000 extra a year on top of our base. We've chosen for the most part that our side hustles are education related. So things like teaching summer school, I've done adjunct work for colleges, teaching classes there. So those are the side hustles we followed. But I know a number of other educators who work second jobs or they work summer camps or they drive for Lyft and Uber. It is one of those things where you can augment your income. Again, you're required to at certain points in your career. But after that, it is a way to build up that extra money to fund extra investments or take amazing trips like Frog Dancer talked about. Jerry, I want to transition a little bit here. We're talking about side hustles. We're talking about maximizing income. We're talking about the idea that as an educator or a teacher, you could reach financial independence. And a lot of us want to reach financial independence because we want to slow down or even leave work. I sometimes think of your field similar to mine. As a physician, the argument has been made that we shouldn't be leaving our jobs because there's a moral obligation to stay in and do what we do. It's good for society. Does teachers have the same issue with slowing down at work, Jerry? Is this idea of a moral obligation to keep practicing your trade, keep on helping the children of America? Is that something you think about? Some people I can tell are kind of shocked that I have stepped away and taken breaks from the profession. I've taken two years off and I took a whole year off another time and another half a year off. But I view it this way. It's allowed me to recharge my batteries and be a more effective teacher. And I'll be honest, I'm not the kind of person that's going to work 30 straight years. I knew that going into it. You know, 30 years, that sounds like a prison sentence to me. 30 straight years, I just knew I couldn't do that. Sometimes it's not always the most fun thing to do to separate from a 
particular employer that you really like, sometimes that's necessary to liberate your money from these inferior products. So that always helped me enter a job with a uh, resignation letter ready to go. I think that it's so important for teachers to learn about financial independence and get their finances in order because we've all worked with those teachers who shouldn't be in the classroom and they're burnt out, they've had enough, but they have to keep coming to work because they can't afford not to. It's one thing to come to work when you really love the profession, you're enjoying the kids, you love seeing that light bulb go on over a kid's head when they get something, but it's very damaging if you're plodding in and just going, oh, God, another day and just gritting your teeth and getting through it. So I was actually at a retirement speech uh, for a girl that I actually went to the same teacher's college as her, and she's retiring. I was a bit envious. I'm going part-time next year, but she's retiring. And she said, I just can't do it anymore. I am exhausted. I've been teaching for 30 years, and I just don't have it in me anymore. And because she and her husband have actually looked after their finances, she's free to realise when enough's enough and step away. And I think you've got to know when enough's enough. Yeah, that's, I think, such a critical point. So I run a series where I interview educators who've taken charge of their finances. Originally, I called it Educators on Fire for Financial Independence Retire Early. But in that, I asked about plans once you're financially independent. Are you going to keep working? Are you going to retire early? And virtually none of them were thinking about retiring early, or if they were, they were going to work in a nonprofit for education or do something else education related. Educators do the work because they love it. They love serving kids. They love teaching. They love working with it. But the point Frog Dancer made about you may not always love that work. So you need to be able to step away. Your life may change. And a big driver is exactly what she said. My wife and I, when we were young teachers, notice that in every school, there's at least one teacher that everyone knows shouldn't still be there. It's not good for them. It's not good for kids. And we never wanted to be those people who were stuck teaching after we were frustrated or fed up um, and we lost the joy of teaching. And so it sounds like for Jerry, that means taking breaks here and there. But that's really the most important piece of financial independence is can you take those options if you no longer find joy in teaching? But most of us do. And I think most of us will continue to work past financial independence. Jerry, speak on this idea of burnout. I mean, is this pervasive in the teaching community? Oh, yeah. You know, teaching can be a tough job just because there's so many interactions every day. And it just seems that we have so many functions to do. And, you know, I'm sure this isn't unique to teachers alone. I'm a coach. I'm a Spanish teacher. I'm an uh, English as a second language teacher. I've been the dean of discipline all at the same time. And I'm also a husband and a father. (laughs) You know, a lot of people have that. Plus, they're doing graduate work. So it can become a pressure cooker. If you're financially independent, you can take a year off and recharge and be a very effective teacher when you come back. You might not have the same job. You might have to go to a different district. You have that option. And I'm very glad I've stepped away. You know, the teacher in the building who should not be there, yep, that seems to be universal. Many people refer to the teacher's lounge as a snake pit. That guy's usually holding court. And it's just a negative energy force. And a lot of times these people, they have to be there, as we've all said. They need the money. If they were not in bad financial standing, they could just walk away like I've done it. I'd like to take a pause for a moment and recap. In the first half of the show, Jerry, Frog Dancer, and Ed dispelled some of the common myths surrounding the financial details of working as an educator. 
After the break, we will tackle the one more year syndrome, part-time teaching, and other strategies to avoid burnout. But before we do, I wanted to say thanks to Joust for supporting What's Up Next. Have you ever thought about starting your own business? Perhaps you wanted to begin a side hustle or passion project, but weren't sure where to begin. Ensuring a steady income will always be one of the first things you think of and could be the reason why you don't eventually take the leap. Joust is the nation's only all-inclusive banking platform for the self-employed. Business banking can feel complicated, but Joust makes it easy. PayArmor, Joust's invoice payment guarantee product, supports the 71% of the gig economy workforce that experiences non-payment. You can sign up for Joust for free at try.joust.com backslash W-U-N and enter the promo code W-U-N and get $100 in credits. That's try.joust.com slash W-U-N. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later... We'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also, discover more than 60 add ons every week. These are chef prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Frog Dancer, you mentioned that you are financially independent, yet you're still working full-time. In fact, I think your plan is to go part-time. Talk about the one more year syndrome and furthermore, this idea of working part-time as a teacher. (laughs) The one more year syndrome. Yes, I could afford to walk away, but after struggling for so many years on my own, bringing up the boys, I do have a fear of running out of money. I really honestly do. I can't access my superannuation for another three years. So I'm looking at part-time as like a glide path to retirement. I figure that I'm going down to three days a week. I just found out I'm working Monday, Wednesday and Friday. It's going to be nice. I'll be in and out, in and out. I think that is going to alleviate a lot of my feelings of getting a little bit burnt out and a bit tired all the time and things like that. I think that part-time is a good way of easing your way out of it because teaching is very social, like Jerry said. I mean, I teach at a school with nearly 2,500 kids. So whenever I'm there, I'm knee-deep in children and noise and activity. For me, going from full-time, you know, go, 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 down to nothing when I retire would be too much. We have our audience that we we perform to every day and I'm secondary so I have different audiences throughout the day and it's a good way of just easing your way out of it. 
Ed, I wonder then, if you have some of the same thought process going on. Do you think part-time eventually will be the direction you go? I mean, you've already talked about being in the seven figures with your net worth now. Are you thinking of slowing down? It's possible. So for me, one thing just to be clear about is I'm not teaching right now. I did the career ladder thing and I'm a school administrator. And so I made more income. But what I've said about school administration is every step you take out of the classroom, you get less of the good and more of the bad, right? And so I do the work because I've been a teacher with a uh, bad principal before. And so I want to help support my colleagues. But there's a different level of interaction that comes with that. So it could be slowing down there. It could be going back to teaching with the classroom that I love and, and getting that energy. You know, one piece I was thinking about around one more year and Frog Dancer men- mentioned three years to her superannuation. Is that what it's called? I think the pension, while it's a benefit, can also be that handcuff for teachers as well, too. And that's often what those burnout teachers are hanging on for is to get the pension. So part of financial independence is knowing enough to figure out how and if you can bridge that gap if you need to step away. Otherwise, you can be stuck waiting for that pension too. Jerry, it almost sounds like the military. I hear military financial independence people often talking about the fact that the pension is its own form of golden handcuffs. Is that something educators are struggling with, whether to leave or not based on the pension? Well, I would say most of my colleagues, they're planning on their pension. So they need to get 30 years in and they can draw immediately or however many years they have and then they can take it at age 60. That's how it works in Georgia. And I didn't want to be in that scenario. But yeah, a lot of people, they can't even conceptualize how you can stop work without a pension. I've got emails from coworkers who ask me, so how are you retired again? And I think they're commingling retired and financially independent. I'm only retired when I decide it, in a sense. Most people, pension is the only way you're going to stop working in their mind. And, and I was just going to add to what Ed was saying. If I'm going to work, jumping in and out as I feel like it, or truth be told, I could see myself not teaching anymore at all because I have a number of things I can do every day. I don't feel like I need the classroom anymore. I still enjoy the kids probably more than ever. However, I do like the idea of keeping the money coming in, but I've realized I think we have enough to make it. Ed, let me turn this around the exact opposite direction. We're talking about pulling back, but you had mentioned that now you're more of an administrator than in a classroom teacher. Is that a road that people are looking to financially make themselves more secure, looking towards the principal pathway, so to speak? It's a way to increase income for sure. And part of the reason I went into that was, as I said, I had colleagues who were telling me, you need to do this. And so I stepped into it. But at that time in my life, we also weren't cognizant of our money. So it was a way to earn more and spend more. And I had a thought in my mind that at some point, I'm probably going to have to care for my mom. So it was about increasing income. But it's also work that I had determined I was willing to do and people said I could potentially be good at. I have seen people who have gone into administration just for the income, and that's a disaster for everyone involved. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, there is nothing worse or more painful for a teacher than to have a bad administrator working for them. And so it is a path people should follow, but they should not follow it just for the income. That won't work out well for them. So Frog Dancer, I want to bring this conversation full circle and start with maybe what actually was the beginning question that I thought up when I was thinking about this episode. Is the educator path a good path to financial stability? I think it is because once you're established, it's a secure base. Once you've got a secure base, then you can build on it. My way of doing it was 
frugality and becoming totally debt-free, you know, with the mortgage. And then once I did that, I was free to then start doing the big moves with investing and geo-arbitrage and things like that. When you have that secure wage coming in, that's like gold. And the good thing about teaching is to every day is different. So you're not going to a cubicle and looking at a computer and a pot plant. You can really enjoy your life along the way as well, which is gold. So yes, I think teaching is a way to do it. It's not the most obvious way, but it's definitely doable. Jerry, let me ask you the same question, but in a slightly different way. If you were a 20-year-old again, would you do it the same way? Uh, Yeah, I would. I would probably avoid the student loan debt so I could start out at zero and I would start funding the various accounts as, as best I could. Day starting, they make more pay. I know I wrote a post about how to fire in seven years in a teacher's salary. Now it's pretty extreme. I don't think most people want to live that way. However, if you want to take a nice leisurely pace, I think teaching is, is a, a, an excellent career because you don't have to limit yourself to just teaching stateside. You can do all those international jobs we mentioned earlier. You can see the world. I mean, how many people get to do things like that? And, you know, we get the summers off to pursue our interests. I would definitely go back into teaching, but I just wish I had some financial savvy before I entered the work career, my work life. Ed, you're shaking your head. So if you had sitting in front of you one of our listeners who was seriously thinking of going into education, what advice would you give them about this path? I think with this whole conversation, I think teaching is a great way to build a solid financial future. It's not a fast way to do it. And I think in order for that to work, you need to understand a lot more than most of us did when we're entering this. I mean, Jerry just mentioned if he'd known more, he could have done more earlier. And I think about, you know, over a decade of lost time where I could have been investing in tax advantage accounts. So I would say absolutely you can do it. You shouldn't do it for the money. But if you love the work, it's a great way to build wealth and a financial future but you want to learn early on about the 403B, the 457, and you need to understand your pension. Frog Dancer, when you're having one of those conversations in the teacher's lounge, where do you send these young educators to learn about their finances so they cannot make the same mistakes that maybe you guys did because you didn't know? Actually, I have done this. Everyone knows of Mr. Money Mustache's shockingly simple math to, to financial independence, that blog post, I send them there because a lot of teachers, even the maths teachers, aren't super savvy with with that concept and it blows their mind. We have people who are really, really mired down in debt. We have sort of a Dave Ramsey-esque thing but without the religion here, um, Barefoot Investor. I so I get them to read that book and then just sort of set them loose with a few different blogs that I think are useful. And JL Collins's Shockingly Simple Math is, oh, no, sorry, Shockingly Simple Math, Simple, simple Path, path to wealth. wealth. That one is really, really good, especially for people like me who are scared of numbers and spreadsheets and that's the way to go. And people love it. Jerry, do you think we'll see more teachers in the personal finance slash financial independence space in the future? Is this population growing? I get emails all the time from people giving me positive feedback on what they've learned. I mean, I got an email two years ago from a 
a woman who said she and her husband had saved $90,000 and she didn't know who else she could tell. She learned about the accounts she had. And that made me feel so good to hear that someone benefited by reading something I wrote. I just got a comment today from an individual somewhere, I believe in Oregon, who said that they lobbied their human resource department to change their 457 and 403B based on some of the things he'd heard me say. And I thought, wow. And, and he got vanguard and fidelity. I'm so jealous. But yeah, I mean, th- th- there's more educators who are clued in as to how financial independence is a possibility. And 10 years ago, I would say, no, there are very few. Ed, tell me, you did an ebook, a free ebook called An Educator's Quick Guide to Financial Independence. Did you get a lot of feedback from teachers about the ebook? So that's just been out a couple of weeks, but I've got good feedback so far. A lot of people are, are talking about that. And really all that was, was trying to put together all the things that I put together over the past couple of years as I was digging into this. Um, things that I pulled from different websites and, and different pieces just to help people get that leg up and that start before they go deeper. And do you think the personal finance educator space is growing? I definitely think it is. I think there are a lot of people stepping into that. And what I really like to see is when I first uh, started digging into this, other than Jerry's site, uh, most of it were people who said, hey, I've become rich. I used to be a teacher, but I've done this instead. Yeah. I left teaching to build financial independence. And so I'm glad to see there are more people who are talking about how they can build wealth and financial independence while doing this really good work that we've all chosen to do. I think that's a great place to end this conversation. You've informed and enlightened our audience about the educator path to FI. And I think just as Jerry said, this idea that you can reach financial independence with many different professions But I think previously, up to this point, people didn't realize that as an educator, as a teacher or an administrator, uh, that there are options there. So thank you for telling us all about those options and helping people see that personal finance and financial independence are available to all of us, including in your field. I'm going to run through each one of you guys, and I want you to tell me what's up next in your life and where can we find you. Jerry, where can we find you on the internet or otherwise, and what's up next with your life? My site is themillionaireeducator.com, and I have a Twitter presence at ed underscore mills underscore. Well, the next six to eight weeks, I'm trying to finish a basketball season. So that's what's really keeping me busy. We had a 48-game losing streak. We're sitting at three and eight. And, uh, you know, we got, it's, we're in a really tough region. So we're going to be very busy with that. But, we're, you know, the vibe is good because we broke the streak. I'm so happy for my players. I was about to say, after 48 losses, three wins is pretty impressive. Oh, they're happy. Trust me. Frog Dancer, where can we find you and what's up next with your life? Well, I write at burningdesireforfire.com. I'm also on Twitter at frogdancer3. And I'm coming into summer holidays now. So it's going to be a summer watching tradesmen work around my house as I get a few projects done. So I'm looking forward to sitting on the front veranda with a glass of wine and watching other people work. And Ed, last but definitely not least, uh, where can we find you and what's up next in your life? 
Yeah, you can find me at educatorfi.com and on Twitter also as educatorfi. For me, I'm just entering the second year of the site, so I'm continuing to write and feature uh, stories of other educators who've taken charge of their finances. And I've received a lot of questions on the site about career advice and steps there, so I'm starting to add some of that content. So that's what's up next. This has been the What's Up Next podcast. I'd like to thank Educator Fi, Frog Dancer Jones, and Jerry Bourne. That's a wrap. You ever scrolling through your Facebook feed and wonder, boy, I wish I could listen to another episode of the What's Up Next podcast. Well, now you can engage our content in two different ways. One, you can go to our website, www.diversify.com. That is D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I.com. And go to the top and just click on the podcast button. Or you can check us out on Facebook at the What's Up Next podcast Facebook group. The easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I dot com backslash Facebook. We hope to see you there and engage with our community on topics very similar to the ones you'll find on the podcast. Now back to the show. We're here with Jessica Garbarino. She's a member of our Facebook group. Jessica, welcome to the What's Up Next podcast. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm totally excited to have you. We're doing more and more segments where we're pulling people in from the Facebook group because this is our community. And it's my favorite way to really discuss what's happening in personal finance, financial independence, and what's happening with our lives. There are all these great articles that come out every day, and it's hard to find a place where we can talk intellectually and intelligently about them. And that's my hope for what the What's Up Next podcast Facebook group is, is a place for us to talk about those things. You can find us at the What's Up Next Facebook group. It is www.diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I.com backslash Facebook. Jessica, you ready to talk about an article? I'm ready to go. Well, there was an article that you had commented on from Forbes by a guy named Jack Kelly, and it's titled, Why Many Professionals in Their Late 30s, 40s, and 50s Are Not Benefiting from the Tight Job Market. And I want to read just the first few paragraphs so people get a flavor of for what's this about. It's widely reported that we are in the midst of an amazingly strong economy with a record high level of employment. However, the United States government and the media merely regurgitating governmental data are detrimentally ignoring a segment of the population who are not participating in the so-called hiring boom. I've interviewed a large number of people who are getting the short end of the stick in this current job market. These people are white-collar professionals in their late 30s to 55 years of age and older. They hold advanced degrees and work or have worked at respectable high-end institutions across the country. Their stories are all eerily similar. They've either been downsized or desperately worried that they'll be targeted for a layoff. The job seekers in part that they are the victims of several current trends. These professionals, usually with 20 plus years of experience, are well compensated. They say that their companies are engaged in the process of juniorization, which entails pushing them out the door in favor of younger employees who are paid much less. Their jobs are also relocated without them to lower cost locations, both within the U.S. and in other countries. Jessica, what do you think about this word juniorization? Do you think it adequately describes what's going on? It's a great term. I never thought of it <laughs> until until they, they spoke of it. I never thought of it in those terms, but it really kind of describes what's going on out in the marketplace, at least from my perspective. 
I mean, I've worked at a very large Fortune 500 company, and I can tell you everything that they talked about in just those first paragraphs has happened. So I don't think it's something that's uncommon. I'm sure there's a lot of other companies that are having the same issue as backed up by this article that's being written by Jack Kelly. Do you think it's happening at a greater velocity in the last few years? Definitely. And I think it's also probably more industry specific, maybe. Well, I guess I can't say that. I worked at a a Fortune 500 retailer, and we all know retail has struggled for a long time. And in the 10-ish years that I was in that organization, I mean, we had a huge merger. So people were laid off. We had outsourcing to India. We're talking like senior accountant level. I was in accounting and finance. So we're talking like senior accountant level supervisor level people being outsourced. We would have these smaller reorganizations. They would either not refill the position or they would refill it at a lower level. And so what was happening is directors were getting more and more people under them and they were consolidating roles basically. So yes, I've seen all of that. I I think I'm seeing it probably more in the last couple of years, but at our company, it was happening for the last decade. You know, the funny thing about it is I understand the economic impetus for it, but you imagine there's got to be a knowledge gap, right? We're getting rid of all these people who have decades of knowledge and either replacing them with someone much younger or getting rid of their positions completely. You wonder what we're losing. I can think of specific individuals that I know that lost their jobs that had been at the company for 10, 15 years. So they had legacy history of that company that no one would be able to replicate. And there's also a professionalism maturity that's gone too, because when you're replacing some of those higher level employees that have been around business and understand kind of the social norms and, but that comes with maturity of being around a business for a while, suddenly you're replacing with people that have not experienced that enough in their career. And I'm not saying that younger people can't bring new things to a a company, but I think you'll lose some of that with that segment of the population leaving the company. And I think it's not only you that's seeing this, but other people from our Facebook group commented, John Stoy said, I need more than one hand to count the number of folks I know who fall into this category, and I'm only one person. And uh, Vicki Cook also said she's from Women Who Money. I talked to two people yesterday who are in this category too, one in middle management and one in HR, and both were let go in restructuring. Both in their 40s worked in their companies for 18 to 20 years. Makes me wonder about loyalty. I mean, is loyalty gone in today's workplace? Well, I mean, I think it's been gone for a while. You know, when we started seeing people being downsized in the late 90s and early 2000s, I was part of layoffs during the recession in 2008. So I can tell you that I think it's eroded for a long time, but I think now it's at the point where I don't understand how companies throw their hands up and say, well, why aren't people staying? Well, give me a reason why I should even want to stay and build my career there. (laughs) Yeah, certainly if I was a young person today looking for jobs, I can't imagine that I would stay with companies knowing that they can downsize you or change your benefits or all these things that get done, it wouldn't make me particularly loyal to that company. You had mentioned that you had seen this before in your career. Amar Talati mentions it happens every generation. I mean, is this any different? I wonder if the same thing was happening, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago too, that it's this natural evolution of the workplace that happens as our young workers get older and cost more. 
I don't know. I mean, my dad was a boomer and he was let go once. And like I said, that was probably in the late nineties. So I think prior to that, if you were let go, first of all, it was considered a terrible thing. Like there was something wrong with you if you were getting let go. As technology has advanced and companies are streamlining, there's a lot of automation. I will tell you in the accounting and finance field, there's a lot of talk of robotics doing a lot of automated things. It just becomes more prevalent. It's a little scary to think I'm already a generation past that <laughs> of all of the, you know, the layoffs that have gone on in the last 20, 30 years now, because we're what, in 2020 now. But I think now it's just kind of the norm. And this is why you have people only staying for a couple of years, because that's the only way they can advance their career, because the levels in between are getting cut out. And definitely when you're on the other side of this, when you're on your 40s and 50s and you are downsized, it's really hard to find another job, especially one that pays similar to what you came from. Absolutely. I have seen people that have just panicked when that's happened. I know that I learned a lot from the last recession (laughs) to be prepared. And I think that's what really gave me the wake up call to make sure I was prepared. But there are still people, I think, because they may not have felt it as deep the last time when it happens now, it's kind of like, what's going on? This is crazy. You mentioned being prepared, and that makes me think a lot about this financial freedom, financial independence community. Chief Mom Officer noted, this happened to my father when I graduated from high school. He always had a side hustle and transitioned it to a business. It's one of the reasons I believe strongly in achieving financial freedom as quickly as possible and not putting all your eggs in one basket. Certainly, that seems to fall under our rubric in our community is this idea that you can't trust your job. You should always have other income sources. You should have investments. You should have side hustles. This article certainly makes me think that if I was especially getting towards the middle of my career in one of these professions, I would be looking at where cash could be coming in from, especially if I got downsized. Well, even some of my siblings who are other late Gen X, but like early millennial, they have side hustles that they're doing as well. They're not just relying on their one source of income because they've seen what's happened to me, my father, friends of theirs. It can happen to anybody if you have cuts anywhere. So I I think that's kind of becoming the norm, this whole gig economy idea that you don't rely on any one thing. I mean, you don't do that with your investments. So why would you do that with your income? (laughs) And I guess the upside of the gig and digital economy is that there are amazingly huge number of hustles and side hustles that you can take part in, especially if you have skills. But even if you don't have skills, you can learn them online. And the possibility of doing that without spending a lot on education, which is what it used to cost people to learn skills, is pretty amazing. So The world is changing and maybe, unfortunately, those of us who are middle-aged are forced to change with it. I don't think it's our parents' uh, playground anymore as far as the workforce. You know, um, it's funny you mentioned that you don't even need to have skills to have a side hustle. I remember reading an article about a guy who will stand in line for people. That was his side hustle, but he was making all kinds of money. And I thought, that's brilliant. You just got to find a gap in the market and fill it. (laughs) So the possibilities are endless. And I think with technology too, we have endless opportunity to be more in control of our, our income. Most definitely. And uh, it makes me thankful, I hate to say it, that I've got to this place with my finances, as well as the fact that I have a degree which tends to allow for continuous employment. 
makes me thankful that I don't have to be worried about these things and glad that our community helps people learn ways around such problems. So it's a good place for us all to be. Definitely. I've appreciated the group for sure. (laughs) I've learned a lot. Well, Jessica, it's been a pleasure having you on. I appreciate you commenting. Juniorization, I guess it's a new term to us, but maybe something that's been happening for a while. But we will wither the storm, I guess, as we wither them all. Thank you for having me on. That reminds me. Got to start recording so I can catch you saying all sorts of embarrassing things that I can use against you and, and you know, in the future. So, so we, can't right. talk, we can't talk about it now. We'll ruin the show. I've done this before. I've been on podcasts and we have such a good conversation before we get on the podcast that when they actually start rolling the tape, we have nothing to say to each other. It's not good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. I tell you what, when my alarm went off at quarter to five this morning... Oof, I hated you all. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, the time zones are just so funny and different. It's, they are. I was about to say, you're in Tuesday already. This blows my yes, mind. Yes. I, we're, we're dead in the middle of Monday right now. So. I'm from the future. <laughs> I was about to say, what happens? <laughs> oh, look, it's great. You know, we're all still here. It's, it's uh, fantastic. Any, any, any stock quotes for me or, you know, lottery numbers, anything that I can use? Oh, wouldn't it be fantastic? <laughs> you know, I'm going out to the pub and having lunch and, <laughs> you know, things like that. So um, Friday is when we finish, and then we've got five weeks of holidays. Uh, all, all good meetings are held in pubs. I think so. <laughs> and school's much nicer without the kids. It's just so cruisy. Everyone's happy and laughing. I mean, you'd know. <laughs> so, we, have, we have students through Friday, so you're making me jealous right now. I'm sitting in my kitchen, so if my wife comes down or my son walks through, you know, you just... (laughs) Smile and wave. Yeah, exactly. Smile and wave. So what sort of stuff do you want to cover today? I'm not telling you that now. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) We were were talking a little bit earlier, and he said we had to stop so we didn't blow it for the show. So he's... he's... I wasn't, you know, born frog dancer. Frog dancer, yeah. (laughs) I I thought that was your real name. You mean that's not your real name? (laughs) Well, everyone in Australia is called Frog Dancer. <laughs> All right. So let I me thought give it was you... Sheila and Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> it could be for the podcast. So. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.